Hello and welcome to Take Talks Business. I'm Melih Kepes, Deputy Secretary General in charge of the Turkey-US Business Council, Take. TAİK is an independent, member-funded organization set up to strengthen trade relations between Turkey and the U.S. I'm very excited about today's guest and episode as I'm sitting down with a woman who is a leading force at the World Bank when it comes to women's empowerment and climate change. Sibel Kulaksız, welcome to TAİK Talks Business. Thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. Same for us, Sibel. Now, to introduce you, as a senior economist with the World Bank Group South Asia region based in Washington, D.C., you have been the lead author of numerous World Bank publications, including Over the Horizon and New Levant, a sub-regional economic integration vision, which proposes comprehensive economic and social development reforms and multi-country investment projects in the Middle East region. Sibel, you are also experienced in post-conflict stabilization operations with a focus on addressing economic impacts of conflicts and refugee flows. At the World Bank just now, you are currently the focal point for corporate priorities such as women's empowerment and climate change. And this is the main focus of our discussion today. Sibel, you are currently at the World Bank leading areas of work on climate change and women's empowerment. But I think our listeners would love to know your background and your journey that took you to the World Bank. Sure. I'm a senior economist at the World Bank based in Washington. I provide policy advice, financing, and technical assistance to governments in the areas of macroeconomic policy, economic growth, fiscal management, trade competitiveness, and regional economic integration issues. I joined the bank 20 years ago when I completed my second master's degree at the Johns Hopkins University. I worked in Middle East and North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South Asia regions. Um, and I managed analytical and operational work at the World Bank. I also did a lot of cross-support work for Turkey. I follow up economic and social development issues very closely. And in addition to my work as a macroeconomist, I'm currently the focal point for, for climate and women's empowerment, as you said, which I find very rewarding. Especially, I completed my executive education at the Harvard University, Kennedy School of Government in 2018. I started paying more attention to climate and gender issues is they are not only the moral obligations we owe to next generations, but also it is smart economics. It's estimated that full gender equality can increase the world GDP by $28 trillion in the next four years. As currently the world is losing because women are not participating fully in economic activities. So there are high opportunity costs. Similarly, every day we do not take an action on climate has a big cost. If we continue at this speed, damages from the climate change will reach $8 trillion by 2050. You have a very impressive uh, background, Sibel. It makes me really proud as a Turkish woman um, that's hearing about your achievements. Um, and as a member of the Turkish diaspora in the United States, 
What is your experience been like at the World Bank in, in DC? The World Bank is a great place to work. I'm very fortunate that I get to work with world's best economists, sectoral experts on a daily basis. We have amazing, dedicated professionals from every country. I particularly like intellectual discussions and knowledge exchange, which result in giving the best policy advice to our counterparts. For example, as Turkish professionals at the World Bank and IMF, we follow economic developments in Turkey, and we have the opportunity to offer recommendations based on our experience in similar settings where we know what policies work and what are the lessons learned from implementing specific policy actions. I was elected as the president of the World Bank and IMF Turkish Staff Association for two years. And my priority was to establish a knowledge bridge between DC and Turkey, which I found very useful. I'm still very active in diaspora work because I firmly believe that whatever we can do in our areas of expertise will have a great contribution to address economic and social development issues in Turkey. That's great to hear that knowledge bridge between our countries is, is uh, of great importance uh, for our business council as well. And uh, your work on climate change at the World Bank, what drives your interest in the topic? And how is the World Bank helping to shape climate change policy around the world? What drives my interest is just seeing the numbers as an economist on how badly we are doing on climate issues. We are currently way off track to meeting the 1.5 Celsius target that the Paris Agreement calls for. If we continue current policies at this speed, climate change impact will push 100 million additional people into poverty by 2030. These are World Bank findings. Also, climate change will force 140 million people into migration by 2050. Today, 3 billion people are at risk who depend on ocean for their livelihood. In the absence of mitigation policies, an increase in temperature by 0.04 Celsius every year will reduce the world GDP by 7%. Agriculture will be most affected sector. More than half of the world's GDP is dependent on nature. That's around $44 trillion. So the cost is very high. So these numbers show that Problems are big, but progress is slow. We need robust actions to reach 2050 targets. So it's it's very clear that climate change is a priority for the World Bank. Uh, it should be a priority for the world, for all the countries, governments. So from your experience, Sibel, what do you see as the major opportunities for governments to introduce greener economic policies and what are the major challenges they face in doing it? The major opportunity is alignment with the Paris Agreement and getting government's commitment on NDCs, nationally determined contributions. 
These are the actions countries will need to take to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in order to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. Furthermore, GHG emissions, monitoring and reporting are important. On regulatory side, emission standards and certificates are needed. With regard to fiscal measures, carbon taxes are advised by the IMF and elimination of fossil fuel subsidies are also recommended. On prioritization of public investment, governments should focus on climate smart investment management practices. Challenges may appear because of high cost of green investment, as well as possible pushback from economic actors, especially if taxes will be increased. But in the long run, green growth benefits will overweigh the current cost. Uh, maybe you partly addressed, but I want to a uh, little bit get into it. Um, its effect on the on businesses. Many major companies tend to be ahead of governments when it comes to environmentally friendly policies, partly to do with a sea change in what consumers expect from companies, and also because going greener makes good business sense, as you said. But what is the potential impact on businesses of governments around the world going greener? Yes, many major companies are already adopting environmentally friendly policies. And it's very interesting for us to follow the cutting edge new innovative technologies. Private sector has a vital role to play. For example, the company NetPowers, semi-closed loop technology, leverages oxycombustion to produce emissions-free power. They burn natural gas with pure oxygen, and the resulting carbon dioxide is recycled through the combustor, turbine, heat exchanger, and compressor, and this creates lower cost power with zero emissions. So this is the technology, new technology of capturing carbon in power plants. In fact, going green is driven by all stakeholders. Consumers are increasingly demanding environmentally responsible actions from the private sector. For example, the shareholders of ExxonMobil recently elected two board candidates nominated by activist investors who pledged to steer the company toward clean energy. And this could en encourage the energy industry to confront climate change and prioritize the issue. BlackRock, Exxon's second larger stakeholder has cast itself as a leader in efforts to reduce companies' carbon dioxide emissions. We see the same trend in Europe. European oil companies are now investing in wind, solar, and other energy sources such as hydrogen fuel cells. So this is the start of a new era for corporate governance. What is the impact of on businesses, coming back to your question, at first, this may seem more costly than business as usual, but the new global trend will encourage the private sector 
to come up with innovative technologies to reduce pollution. Business practices and investment priorities will change for the better. And in the long term, sustainability will benefit everyone. Thank you. Um, what about global businesses? How do you see the impact on businesses that operate in many countries having to navigate different environmental regulations in those markets? Could we see discussion about a global green framework or an environmental tax framework like President Biden's administration has been proposing to stop countries implementing their own digital taxes on the world's uh, largest uh, companies? The Biden plan for clean energy revolution and environmental justice makes a lot of sense. A concerted effort is needed to come up with a global umbrella framework, which President Biden calls the Green New Deal. This is crucial for addressing the climate change challenges we face, rather than every country implementing ad hoc policies of their own because this may cause economic disruption and diversions. So climate change is a global challenge that requires coordinated action from every country. And President Biden's plan to rally the rest of the world will have an impact. Yes, we, we experienced uh, the importance of uh, acting globally, acting together uh, in COVID-19 crisis. So I completely agree. Uh, Turkey's biggest partners, uh, like European Union, has as the Green Deal, which will, uh, I think, uh, replace the customs union. Um, and US uh, puts this as a as a priority number one. So it's it's very important what you say. Definitely, we need an umbrella framework. Um, you were recently involved in a Council of Europe initiative around green economic policies, and you're writing a chapter in a major new report for them. Can you tell us more about your involvement? Yes, the Council of Europe invited me to a parliamentary hearing in January this year. I made a presentation on climate economics to European parliamentarians within the Committee on Legal Affairs and Human Rights. The Council is currently working on a report about addressing issues of criminal and civil liability in the context of climate change, which will be published in September. And I wrote the economics chapter of this report. With this work, Council of Europe is discussing to bring criminal and civil liability framework, which will be a game-changing next step. This will help bring deterrence. They are discussing to activate European conventions on criminal and civil liability, so actions with negative impact on environment can be stopped. There is a high economic cost of environmental damages and The council feels that compensation is required. My role is on economics of this new European agenda. We discussed that legal and economic actions should go hand in hand to improve our environment. Citizens are demanding legal actions now against longstanding climate problems. 
In the meantime, this is already happening. In the Netherlands, for example, a court required Royal Dutch Shell to reduce the emissions of gases by 45% by the end of the 2030. And this ruling applies only in Shell's home country. What role do you see for organizations like the World Bank and the Council of Europe in influencing governments' drive to greener policies globally? For international organizations, there are three ways to support government policies to reach net zero omission. First, invest more in green infrastructure and clean energy. Second, gradually raise carbon prices and this will encourage the switch to clean technologies. Third, use carbon revenues to invest in people so that households are not negatively affected from rising prices. These policy side actions are already done by the World Bank and IMF. What is missing here is the legal commitment side of the operation. And this is where the Council of Europe is filling the gap. A green recovery requires governments act decisively together and with support from all international partners. In addition to the World Bank, IMF is also providing policy advice to countries to address climate issues. One example is the IMF advice on carbon taxation. IMF argues that this taxation provides an incentive for redirecting energy investment toward low carbon technologies. However, this should come with social protection. A good example is Sweden. Following the introduction of a carbon tax, low and middle income households received higher transfers and tax cuts to help offset higher energy costs in Sweden. IMF also played an advisory role in Denmark's green vision. Denmark's parliament passed a climate law that aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70% by 2030. And uh, they target net zero emissions for 2050. Uh, now, I really want to touch on this uh, as it's an important topic. You recently wrote for the World Bank on the role of women entrepreneurs in shaping the world's digital future as we enter our fourth uh, industrial revolution. It should be obvious to the world by now, but for those who need to be educated, why is it critical that we include women at the center of this revolution? Women have to be included in the fourth revolution because this is a big opportunity to close the long-standing gender gap. As 60% of the global GDP is expected to be digitized as early as next year. Excluding women from economic opportunities and legal rights is not only a human rights issue, but also a development issue. Advancing women's equality can add as much as $28 trillion to world economy. So we are all losing from this. 
The fourth revolution is driven by digital economy, and it is a sector that has the potential to create significant number of jobs. This offers a great opportunity for women to participate in productive sectors. It is important that women get educational support and access to financial services to succeed in this new world. Otherwise, it will take 257 years to achieve economic gender parity, according to the World Economic Forum's recent report. My aspiration is not only to see women participating in economic activities, but participating as leaders and decision makers. We want to see at least 50% of cabinet as female ministers. We want to see large number of women CEOs, business owners. We need top-down, affirmative, determined, consistent action to empower women. Well, Sibel, we definitely uh, don't have 257 years to waste, <laughs> to wait for it. So um, you wrote in your piece about an OECD report from uh, 2018, which showed that 327 million fewer women than men have a smartphone and can access the mobile internet. What do you see as the fundamentals uh, businesses and governments need to get right to ensure women are at the forefront of digital industries when it's still a reality that so many women don't have the basic tools they need to succeed in the modern world? Yes, this is the biggest challenge. Governments and private sectors should have the accountability to ensure that women have full access to all required tools. There needs to be a budget allocation for this specific target, both from the recurrent spending and investment budget of the government. They need to put together a big data to match female entrepreneurs with business opportunities in online platforms. There needs to be a special effort to close the gap between women's supply-side education level and the new digital skills demanded globally. Governments should allocate budget to provide women with language and computer skills, and more importantly, with leadership educational programs. Sibad, this has been fascinating and insightful, and we could talk for hours. One final question to leave us on. What are the key trends you see in governments forming their green economic policies? Thank you for this great discussion. The key trends in post-COVID era will be about building back better and greener. Governments are now developing economic policies not to go back to pre-COVID levels, but to redesign the economy in a way that prioritizes green economic growth. For this to happen, there needs to be two sets of new policies, both on mitigation and adaptation side. First, introducing decarbonization policies 
And second, bringing adaptation policies with a focus on regulations and standards. But of course, mobilizing private sector will be at the center of this. Private sector has a vital role to play for accelerating sustainable energy for the future. And it's important that governments and private sector leaders come up with a joint roadmap to implement. Sibel, thank you for joining us on this episode of Take Talks Business. Your work is incredibly important and I'm very excited to see more from you. For uh, more information about Take, please visit take.org.tr and follow us on Twitter at Take Official. We'll be back soon with more discussion and debate focused on Turkish business and trade. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.